So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. And if you weren't with us last week, not only did you miss out on a great dad's root beer, all of you fathers, but we were looking at following the leader and how Paul was speaking to these Ephesian elders, telling them how he demonstrated through his life and the manner he lived among them from the first day. He was, he was calling them to, to live a life of integrity. He pointed to what a good leader looked like, not just in himself, but as he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. And we got to see some great important facts about what a leader looks like through the life of Paul. But today we're going to pick up really right after his discussion with them, his exhortation to these Ephesian elders in chapter 21, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we have the actual scriptures on the screen. We'll try and pull those up for you so you can see those as we read along. But starting in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos. The following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left and sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When he had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come over to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went up with us and brought with them a certain nation of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear what you have co- that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and on the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander of the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, God, as we see the continual journey that that Paul has been on and now arriving in Jerusalem, God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, that you would speak through your word to your people. Lord, we believe that not only was this a very real fact that took place in the life of Paul, but it also is a a real truth for us today, some of the things we can pull from there, some of the application that is for us today as well. God, we pray, would you speak to us? Would you open up our hearts to receive your word? Would you give us spiritual eyes to see the truth? God, we want to hear from you. So Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way. God, that it would be your words that go forth 
and that you would get the glory in it. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're taking notes today and you want to write down a title, you can write down the title, The Cost of the Call. The Cost of the Call. You know, all throughout Scripture, you can see different men and women that God gave a specific call to in their lives. So something He was calling them to be or a place He was calling them to go or something He was calling them to do, and with that call came a cost, something they were going to have to pay to accomplish that task. Well, with that call also came a conviction when the Lord told them that they knew they had to obey the Lord, and so they would follow out. I think of men like Abraham, right? A call to be this, this father of the faith, a man who's called to go to a place he doesn't know, a man who's, who's really called to represent the Lord in so many different ways to the people. And what did it cost him? Well, it costed him being willing to sacrifice his own son, it costed him being willing to pack up and leave his family and go to a place he didn't know. What about three young men who were told to bow down to an idol? But they knew clearly that God had called them to walk a different way, to not bow down to that idol. And what did it cost them being thrown into a fiery furnace? Or a man like Daniel, who knew what he was called to do, who knew how he was called to live, who then was told he couldn't pray to his God, but he did as was his discipline every single day. And he went into his room and he prayed with the window open and he was thrown into a lion's den for it. And what about in the New Testament, just even in the book of Acts specifically? We've seen men give their lives for the gospel. Men like James and Stephen, killed because they counted the cost and knew that we were called to spread the gospel at all cost. And if that means my life, then so be it. And they gave of their life for that call. Even the man we're looking at today, Paul, had counted the cost, had been knocked off of his donkey on the road to Damascus and gave up his reputation, his power, his influence, his authority, his safety for following Jesus. And you and I are no different today. If we're going to answer the call that God has for our lives, we need to realize it's going to come at a cost. There's a price to pay in following Christ. This is why we are told to count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 14, he told the disciples to count the cost. He even spoke to him to the point that anyone who comes to him and does not hate his own father and mother, brother and sister, couldn't be his disciple. Whoever did not bear his own cross and come after him couldn't be his disciple. And he even gave the example of which one of you who desires to build a house does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. No, you sit down, you make sure, do we have enough funds? Do we have enough resources? Can we accomplish this? Okay, and you begin the work. And in the same way, he called all of us at one point to count that cost when we desired to follow after him. But there are other costs that will come because that is a general cost. Everyone who desires to be a disciple of Jesus must count. There are specific costs in your life you must count. 
Because there is the general being a disciple of Jesus, but like Paul here, there is a call to Jerusalem even though he's told repeatedly that chains await him. This wasn't something that every disciple of Jesus was going to face, but something specific to Paul that he had to count the cost and follow after Christ. But there was a conviction within him. As we'll see, he says he was bound in the Spirit so that he knew clearly God has called me to do this. So whatever the cost, I'll pay it. I can think of a time when I was getting premarital counseling with my wife. And Pastor Rod Thompson was about to marry us. And a few days before the wedding, he sits down with us. And, and he knew that I felt called to be in ministry. And at that time, I was helping with a youth group part-time. I hadn't stepped fully into ministry yet. And, and I remember him looking to my wife, my fiance at the time, and going, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm thinking, what is this guy doing? Like, I'm not paying you for that. But he, he, he looks to her and he says, are you sure you want to do this? Because this guy's called to ministry and he's going to be in ministry and that's a difficult life. And, and he started laying out all of the costs that it was going to take if I was going to pursue a life of ministry. And if she's marrying me, she's joining into that. And he wanted to make sure before you step into this marriage, you need to count the cost. You need to realize what you're giving up if you're marrying this guy. A lot. And she had to count that cost. She probably should have counted it a little more. But she married me, so she's stuck with me now. But there are costs in life we need to count. Maybe you've found yourself really irritable lately, really frustrated and discouraged, and, and perhaps it could be the reason why is because you've forgotten the cost of discipleship. You've forgotten what it takes as a follower of Christ, what you're choosing to give up. And in that moment, you're frustrated that they're not treating me right, and I deserve better than this, and, and this and this and this. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Didn't you count the cost and say, I'm giving up everything, and I want to be great in His definition, which means I'm going to be a servant of all. And I'm counting the cost like John the Baptist to say that I want to decrease, and I want Him to increase. So why am I frustrated? Why am I angry? Why am I upset? Well, because we've forgotten. This is not something one day you count the cost and you follow Jesus the rest of your life. This is a daily decision you make when you get up in the morning to count the cost and say, today I'm going to follow Jesus. Today I'm going to pick up my cross. And today I'm at your expense, Jesus. I've been bought at a price. I want to glorify you with my body. So where you say to go, I'll go. What you say to do, I'll do. It may not go how I wanted it to, but I've counted the cost, and so whatever the price, I'll pay it. That's what we see here in the resolve of Paul. What was his conviction behind this calling? Well, there were multiple layers to it. Part of his, his rush to get to Jerusalem is because he's bringing financial help and support to the church in Jerusalem, to those who were in need. Another reason is, he was going to use this support, this assistance, to really unite Jew and Gentile. This was a part of Paul's heart in unifying the church. Part of it, I'm sure, was to redeem a place that he had lived a very different life before. And now he's going back as a new man, a different person. Now as an ambassador of the gospel in a place he did so much damage before. 
But ultimately, we know he's going there because he's going to the ends of the earth to spread the gospel. And although his, his journey will end fairly soon, we know that if, if, if Paul had his say in it, he would have just kept going. He had more places to go and people to see and things to do. But he had this conviction. He was bound in the spirit to go, and he knew Jerusalem's where I'm heading. And so he wasn't going to let anything stop him, as we see in our text. You know, in counting the cost, there was once a Bible teacher that taught, and a young man was so moved by his message, he came up to him afterwards, and he said, I'd give the world to be able to teach like you. And the preacher looked at him and he said, good, because that's exactly what it'll cost. You see, every single calling that God places on our life, it's going to cost you giving up everything else to follow that call. I think of the Olympic trials that are going on right now. Have any of you been watching those? When I look at those, I'm always looking at it like, man, I wish I could be there running right now. Like, wouldn't that be awesome to, to be in the Olympic team, to represent USA, to get a gold medal? All I'm looking at is the benefit and the reward of that calling. I'm not looking at the cost. And we can do this very easily, can't we? Man, what I would give to be there. Not thinking about what it would cost to get there, just, man, I would love to be there. Well, first of all, very clearly, you can look at me and know he's not an Olympian, right? You're, you're not called to that. But also, I don't want to pay the price. I see the benefit, I see the glorious moment where they're in, on the big screen. They're getting the gold medal on. They're standing there as, as the national anthem's being played, as they see their flag going up and I'm thinking, man, I want that. But I don't want the, the decades of, of difficult training they went to to get to that point. The amount of money they had to spend on trainers, on equipment to prepare for that moment. The amount of things they had to say no to. No, I'm not going to go on that trip. No, I'm not going to eat that thing. No, I'm not going to go there or do that because I'm committed to this. Everything else, I'm giving up to follow this. And we can look at a man like Paul and his resolve. Say, man, I want to be like Paul. Be careful what you wish for. Go ahead and look at all the things that Paul went through for the call that God had on his life. You remember when he was first called, when Ananias comes to him and prays and the scales are taken off of his eyes, why was he supposed to go to him to tell him all the things that he must suffer for the sake of Christ? That's the cost Oh, you're going to go and you're going to speak to kings and leaders and you're going to go throughout the nations and you're going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and... but you're going to suffer. There's going to be a cost you're going to pay for the calling that God had on his life. What we read here, we pick up, it begins by saying that he departed from them. He's in Miletus and he's been meeting with the Ephesian elders and now he's departing and he's leaving them. But that word for departed it more literally means they had to tear themselves away from them. This is a struggle. These are men and women that he loved dearly. But he's counted the cost and he can't stay no matter how badly he wants to. He has to literally tear himself away, pull himself apart from them and get on the ship to move to where he knows he needs to go. And that's a part of counting the cost, isn't it? Sometimes it will cost you family and friends. It'll cost you some of your deepest and closest relationships. 
but you know that conviction you feel that I've got to follow what God is calling me to do. And Paul knew that that journey needed to take him to Jerusalem. But this wasn't an easy goodbye. Paul was attached and connected to these people. In fact, we saw last week he didn't even go to Ephesus because he knew that'll take too long. I can't do that. I can't spare that kind of time. Just bring the elders to me, and I'm going to share with them. But it was a painful departure, but a necessary cost in fulfilling his calling. And so we read that they ran a straight course, and they came to Kos, and then Rhodes, and then Patara. And these are all smaller cities that are right along the coastline. We can assume that they were probably in a smaller ship that would have just traveled in the shallower waters just from one of these small ports to the next. And they're staying along the coastline until they get to Batara, because Batara is a much larger port where there's much larger ships, which is what they're going to need because they're about to cross the Mediterranean Sea as they're heading towards Jerusalem. The little ship they've been on won't make it. And you're like, why does any of this matter? Who cares what size ship they were on? Well, it brings a little clarity if you have the question of why all of a sudden is Paul spending seven days somewhere when he's been in such a rush and he's been going from place to place for like a day or a night or even just grabbing these Ephesian elders and then continuing on? Why would he spend a week somewhere as we see he does here? Well, because he's in a much larger ship that as it gets to port needs to unload all of its cargo. And we assume that that seven days would have been the amount of time it took to fully unload this ship, this larger ship that he would go on. But all of these small little trips, they're continuing to be a straight course as he heads his way to where he needs to go. Because Paul knows there's no time to stop and sightsee. There's no time to just kick back and take a vacation. I'm not going to retire right here. I'm on a mission and I need to go. And so let's run a straight course. Let's get there as quickly as we can. And he arrives at Tyre. Now, Paul didn't plant the church in Tyre, but no doubt he had some sort of influence in those who went to plant the church. But I love the first thing he does when he arrives in Tyre is he makes it his aim to find disciples there. Now, the word for finding, it actually implies this idea of searching out. And so when they land, Paul doesn't say, ah, oh, I'm just going to go kick back on the beach, guys, get a little tan, just wake me up when it's time to go. He's seeking and searching out disciples. He's looking for other believers within Tyre. He didn't find them by accident. He wasn't tanning on the beach, and the guy next to him tanning on the beach is also a disciple. And he's like, well, what do you know? No, he's out there looking for them. He's seeking them out. Do you see the intention of this man, Paul? That when he goes to a new place, the first thing he's looking for is not the coffee shop. It's not the sweet sights he's got to see while he's here. It's where are the believers? I want to encourage the believers that are here. I want to be encouraged by the believers that are here. I want to hear what God is doing here. I want to be used by God here. See, Paul is a man that 24-7 is an ambassador of the gospel. Now, I'll be the first to admit that this was challenging for me as I read this because I have this ability, and maybe you do as well, that you're going on a vacation, you're going on a trip. And so you take off your servant hat and you put on your I want to be served hat. And so when there's a problem, that's someone else's problem. And as I'm going, I'm looking not for how can I serve here, how can I be a part of this, but how can I be served? 
which is never a good way to go into any of your days. But I love that Paul doesn't do that. We don't see him taking off hats and saying, no, I just want to kick back here. Later, when I get to Jerusalem, that's when the real work will ramp up, but I need to, I need to recharge my batteries. You know, I just, I need to take some time for me before I go there. Every place they go, he's intentionally saying, where are the believers? And I want to pour into them. I want to be encouraged by them. I want to use my gifts to serve them. I love the intentionality of Paul. And he locates these believers. And what do they tell Paul? But through the Spirit that he is not to go up to Jerusalem. And we've got a problem here, right? Because Paul's a man who said the Lord has told him he needs to go to Jerusalem, and now he's got believers here that are telling him in the Spirit, you're not supposed to go to Jerusalem. And we've got to do something with this. What, what, what's the answer here? Well, there's actually two lines of thought. I tend to lean more towards these men were told what Paul has already said. He's continually been told by people through the Spirit that chains await him, that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound, he's going to be chained up, and that's what they told him. And so when they hear that from the Spirit, they tell that to Paul, and then they interpret that to be, so you shouldn't go there. The Spirit's saying, there's chains awaiting you there. Therefore, our conclusion do not go there. If that's where chains are, go the opposite direction, actually, Paul, but don't go there. Others would say, no, this is actually them fully from the Spirit telling him, you should not go there. And he's going in disobedience as he goes there. That Paul is so stiff-necked and set on, I'm going to go there, that even when the Spirit's telling him don't, he continues to say, I'm going to. There's some argument, there's some disagreement around this. But I'd say the majority of people believe that Paul is not in the wrong for not heeding their instruction. Because we could look back, do you remember last week at chapter 20, verse 23? What does Paul clearly say? And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. This wasn't the first time somebody had told him, hey, there's chains for you there. Every city, the Lord's continuing to confirm that. And you say, well, why would the Lord continue to share that? I think the Lord's preparing Paul for what's ahead. I think the Lord's giving Paul an opportunity in every city he stops at to count the cost and to remind himself, this is what's headed. You're heading towards chains. You're heading towards something that's not going to be a walk in the park, and so prepare your heart count the cost, be ready for what awaits you there. Because we don't see Paul walking away from the Lord. We see no evidence that he's not wanting to hear from the Lord. In fact, he continues to kneel with them before he gets on the ship, and he's praying with them. He's seeking the Lord. And he feels constrained in the Spirit that although there's chains that await me, that's exactly where God has called me to go. And as he continues on, he arrives at the house of Philip. And if you've been with us through the book of Acts, this should shock you that he's arriving at the house of Philip to lodge there, to stay there. There's a beautiful picture here of the redemption and the forgiveness and the unity that can happen within the people of God when they're surrendered to him. Because these two have met before. Paul and Philip, they met back in Acts, as we've already seen in chapter 7, 
when Saul is persecuting the church, and there's a great persecution that's taking place, and Stephen is put to death, and many of the believers are dispersed. And we see Philip from there go out to Samaria. And then he continues to move on. Now we find him here, a father of these daughters. But the last time these two had any interaction, Saul was dragging people outside of their homes to have them arrested and overseeing the death of believers. And now he comes and he stays and lodges in the home of Philip. We don't see Philip stopping him at the door like, I cannot forgive you for what you did to Stephen. No way. There's no going back for that. We don't see him questioning and looking over his shoulder the whole time like, I still don't really trust you. You can stay here, but I don't really believe you. No, he welcomes him in. They're praying for him. They're housing him. They're encouraging him. This sweet fellowship that is only possible in the Lord. That's the power of what God can do when lives are surrendered to him. That Philip can look at this man, once Saul, now Paul, and say, you're a brother and you're welcome in my home because you're not the same man you once were. And now we follow the same God. And now we're both surrendered to him. And so if I can house you, I will gladly house you. Come into my home. Bitterness can be removed. Healing can take place and relationships can be restored. And maybe some of you need to be reminded of that. That when you think of that instance of a Paul and a, or a Saul, really, and a Philip, that then can be a Paul and a Philip later that are brothers in Christ, maybe you think of somebody in your mind that still feels like, no, it could never happen. We could never be friends again. We could never be brothers in Christ. We could never have that kind of fellowship ever again. Don't doubt what the power of God can do when lives fully surrender to him. Now, it takes humility on both of their parts. Man, that's got to be a humble step into his home for Paul to take. As he steps in feeling like, man, I, I'm so sorry for who I once was, for what I did. But it's also a leap of faith for Philip to be willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to look beyond that. Because Christ has forgiven me so much more, I can forgive you of anything you've done. But that's the power of what Christ can do in your relationships, even those severed, even those that you think there's no hope of them ever being restored. Don't doubt what the power of God can do. Continue to pray that he would restore those relationships, that he would bring healing, that he would remove bitterness where it's there so that those can take place. Well, as he's in the home of Philip, as he's sitting with them and Philip, his daughters, this prophet from, um, from Jerusalem or Judea comes to him, Agabus, and as he comes, he he does something that's a little theatrical. seems a little different than anything we see in the New Testament. It's more common in the Old Testament. He takes Paul's belt and he binds his hands and he, he says, this is exactly what's going to happen to the, to, in Jerusalem to the man whose belt this is. Well, everybody knows it's Paul's belt and you're like, why didn't you just say it? Right? We see it a lot more in the Old Testament where God called the prophets to do some pretty wacky things like laying on their side or walking around naked and you're like, what are you marrying a prostitute? And you're like, these poor prophets. Once again, be careful what you wish for. Next time you say, I want to be like those prophets. God called them to do some crazy things. 
but it was pointing to an example. It was an illustration of what was going to take place. And here he's doing this to say, hey, listen up, buddy. This is what awaits you. Paul, if you're heading there, you're going to be bound. Make no mistake. And then Luke and all the other guys start getting in on it and being like, yeah, man, you really shouldn't go. Don't do it, okay? Like every town we're going to, they're continuing to say this same message. Don't do it. And Paul asks them this question. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he could not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. He says, I'm willing to be bound. I'm willing to give up my freedom. I'm willing to give up my own decisions on where I go and what I do because God's calling me there. In fact, I'm willing to die. I'm already a dead man walking. He's already counted the cost. He doesn't live for himself. In fact, many would say, no, Paul actually died a long time ago on the road to Damascus. So the fear of death is long gone. And so if, if chains and death await him in Jerusalem, no problem. I'm a dead man walking anyway. I'm, I'm living for Christ, and that's where I need to go, and so I'm going. But notice that it wasn't until they determined that he would not be persuaded that they ceased. It wasn't without a lack of effort. They didn't say, well, maybe you should think, no, okay, no, it was a bad idea, sorry. They're continually trying to persuade him with tears. They're begging him and pleading with him, Paul, please don't go. You're going to be bound there. You could die there. Look at all the things God's using you to do. Don't go. And they continue to plead until they realize we can't convince him. He is determined that the Spirit of God has bound him to this, and he's going to do it. So then the will of the Lord be done. Realize this. There will be well-intentioned friends and family that will push you and push you against something that God could be calling you to do. This is why you need to count the cost and be sure that you have that conviction that this is from the Lord. Because if Paul's uncertain here, we'd see a lot more of a wrestle, wouldn't we? I mean, they're begging, they're pleading with tears. If I'm not sure, I'm like, wow, you guys really feel strongly? Maybe I should, maybe I should wait a while. Maybe I should second guess this. We don't see that. There's a resolve in Paul. He's already counted the cost long ago. So there's no confusion in this moment for him. And you must have that same spiritual resolve, that unwavering confidence and steadfastness in your commitment if you hope to withstand that kind of persuasion from those you love most, from those you trust most, from those that you know are hearing from the Lord, men and women of God. As 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's Paul. He is steadfast, immovable in this decision. I am going to Jerusalem. They say, I'm going to be bound. All right, I'm mentally prepared now. I'm counting the cost. I'm going to be bound there, but I'm still going. 
I could die? Okay, that's fine. I will die there, but I'm still going. And they conclude, the will of the Lord be done. That's what they should have said from the beginning. But they're struggling with their will be done and then thy will be done. Paul, we don't want you to go. We don't want to lose you. Okay, you're determined. The Lord's saying, Lord's will be done. Don't ever let your opinion or your preference get in the way of God's plan. Have you ever been guilty with this with friends and family where you feel this tug like, I don't want you to go. And it's really hard for me to, to hold my tongue right now because I want to say a lot of things to try and convince you to stay. But if God's calling you to, to go, I need, I need to hold my tongue. I'm only making matters worse if I try and convince you to do something that's apart from what God has called you to do. Parents, we can allow our loving care to, to cloud our judgment at times. Can't we? When our kids feel called to go somewhere, they're thinking that's not safe, that's dangerous, that's not setting you up for the future. But are we willing to, like the disciples here, say the will of the Lord be done? That doesn't mean we don't offer wise counsel. That doesn't mean we don't encourage them to continue to seek the Lord. But we're willing to say the will of the Lord be done, not my will. Maybe you have plans for your kids. Maybe God has different ones. But at the end of the day, we have to be willing to say, the will of the Lord be done. During the Reformation in England, there was a convert. His name was Thomas Bilney. And he was a man who had gotten a hold of a Greek New Testament and read these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And it was that verse that opened his eyes to the gospel. It was that verse that began to light a fire within him so that he would go on to be this mighty, fiery preacher, going and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And he became a powerful voice for Christ during this time. But then came the Counter-Reformation. And many reformers were burnt at the stake if they would not recant their biblical beliefs. Well, Bilney was going throughout sharing the truth, and so he was arrested as well, imprisoned with the same deadly consequence if he wouldn't recant his faith. And his friends came to visit him while he was in prison, and they begged him, and they wept with him, and they continued to argue and plead with him, just recant your faith, just deny it and live. And he continued to fight against it because he kept struggling with this idea that if I try and save my life, I'll lose it but those who lose their life for the sake of Christ will find it. But finally, he was persuaded. Just two days before he was to be burned at the stake, he went before the judge and he recanted his faith. He determined within himself that this was his resolve. I'll deny in this moment to spare my life so that I can use my life for Christ. Well, instead what happened is that he couldn't even bear the guilt and the shame that came from that moment of denying his faith. A man who had denied any belief in the word of God now couldn't even bear to hear it because he felt so guilty for denying it once. And he slowly faded away from the Lord for many years. But later he came back to those same friends weeping, falling in their arms, it says, as he concluded that I just, I can't do this anymore. I can't live with this kind of guilt 
And God used those friends to pray over him. And slowly, they said that fire began to light within him again. Over time, his heart was once again softened to the gospel. And gradually, he began to return to his once so dear faith and went out once again, boldly sharing and being used by God. And once again, he was arrested for it. But having learned his lesson the first time, he refused to give up his beliefs about Christ. The next day, he descended into Lollard's pit, where many martyrs before him had gone. And as he went down into the pit, it said that he fell down to his knees, he prayed to the Lord, and then he rose up, he embraced the stake, and he kissed it. And as he was burned that day at the stake for his faith, there were two things that he yelled out, Jesus and Credo the Latin word for I believe. You see, his loving, good-intentioned friends thought we've got to convince this guy to deny Jesus so that he can get out of this cell, so that we can give him a better life, so that we can spare him the pain that awaits him. And instead, his life of freedom that came was a life bound in chains of guilt and shame. And the freest he felt was in that prison cell, was at that stake where he could boldly proclaim, man, I believe in Jesus. And just like Paul here, he had the resolve to say, I'll die for it. Paul's question to these disciples here who are pleading with him is why are you or what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Those words, breaking my heart, literally mean softening my will. What are you doing softening my will, my resolve? I've already counted the cost. I'm heading to Jerusalem. Why are you trying to change my mind? I'm determined. I'm bound by the Spirit. I'll be bound there and even killed there for the sake of the Lord. Their pleading was distracting Paul's mind. It was softening his will. And he says, what are you doing? Stop. Don't change my mind. He didn't want a fate like this other man who gave in, who didn't follow what Christ was calling him to do. And as Acts 20, 24 says, Paul determined, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was it. That's his goal. That's his aim. That's what he's living for. And he says, guys, stop. You're going to convince me to stop running. Don't do it. I'm going to continue to run my race. I want to finish my course. And so they say, the will of the Lord be done. And here's what I love is that they packed up and went to Jerusalem. And some of the the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain nascent of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Do you know what I love is that even though these people disagreed with Paul and they pleaded with him to change his mind, they were the kind of friends that said, even though we don't agree with what you're doing, even though we think you should do something else, we're willing to go with you. We're willing to carry the load with you and follow with you there. And that's the kind of friend I want to be in the Lord. That even if I see somebody doing something and I say, 
I would do it this way. I wouldn't do that. But if you feel confident that's what God's calling you to do, man, I will support you in that. I'm not going to say my way or the highway. I'm not going to say, well, you're on your own if you're going to go to Jerusalem, Paul. No, they're the kind of friends that say, all right, then the will of the Lord be done. We're going with you. Let's go. And they arrive at Jerusalem, and they, it says that they were received gladly. And you say, well, of course they were. They came with money, right? Well, that's part of it. Yes, they're coming to, to bring some financial support. But also, there's a sweet fellowship that's being had in this moment as Paul's coming and sharing all that God has done, his testimony of, of the things the Lord has been doing. But it's very specific here. It says, he told them in detail those things which God had done. Paul's not here to say, you want to know how many salvations I got? He's not here to say, you want to know what I've been able to accomplish? No, he tells them in detail. Details are important at times. He tells them in detail all that God has done. This wasn't bragging on his accomplishments. This wasn't boasting in his own effectiveness. And their response, what was it? To praise Paul? No, to glorify God. He gave credit where credit was due. And so the people respond in giving praise where praise is due. They're glorifying God. God's the one saving. God's the one doing the mighty work. I'm just here to tell you guys the story. And so they glorified God for it. Are we giving testimonies to what God has done? Are we looking for opportunities like Paul as we see friends and family to, to testify, man, let me tell you what God has done this year, this week, today. Let me tell you the incredible things he's doing in my life and the, the people around me and what I see him doing so that we can all praise God together. This was a theme for Paul. In Acts 14, 27, he gathered the church together and it says he reported all that God had done with them. Then in Acts chapter 15, verse 12, Paul and Barnabas declared how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them. And here in Acts 21, 19, telling in detail those things that God had done among the Gentiles. It's not about Paul. It's not about Barnabas. It's not about any of the disciples. Let me tell you what God has done. And they glorify the Lord with him. They're celebrating, but then they bring these accusations before him. They're celebrating the fact that God is doing incredible things and there's this myriad of Jews. That word means like thousands. It's actually speaking to legions, like when angels are described, the numbers of them. Man, there's just thousands of Jews that are being saved, Paul, but they're very zealous for the law. They're still holding very tightly to the law and the way that they've always done things. And there's these rumors spreading, Paul, about what you're doing, that you're actually telling people to no longer follow that, to do away with all that, to do away with everything Moses said. So what then? What are, what are we supposed to do with that, Paul? It's awesome what God's doing, but what are we supposed to do with that here? These people are zealous for the law. And when they see you here and they hear that this is the Paul who's been stirring things up, telling them not to follow this, bad things are going to come. And talk about counting the cost for Paul. He's falsely accused here of something that people aren't even going to give him a chance to defend in the moment. They're just going to start beating him. And a crowd just erupts. And it must be so frustrating for him because if you look at the book of Galatians, 
In chapter 5, verse 11, the Jews are accusing him of teaching circumcision. What do we see in Acts 21? They're accusing him of not teaching circumcision. I mean, everywhere he goes, it's just false accusation, false accusation. They're accusing him of this side and then this side, and, and he can't win. And the enemy is just continuing to raise up men and women who will just come against him, who will spread a rumor, who will start a riot to try and hinder what Paul is doing. Remember, up to this point, Paul has written the letter to the Romans already. He wrote it from Corinth before he ever got here to Jerusalem. And what does he say in Romans? In chapter 14, he talks all about not quarreling over opinions of what food you should eat or what day you should celebrate is more holy than another. And he concludes, why do you pass judgment, this is in Romans, on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. These are all things he's written in a letter to the Roman church, and then here he's being accused of this. Oh, you're stirring up, you're causing division, and you're judging those, and you're throwing away the law. It's the exact opposite of what Paul's doing. He's trying to produce unity. But they continue to bring about this division. And so they tell him, here's what you need to do. We've got a plan together. We've got these guys here who have taken a vow, the Nazarite vow that we see back in the book of Numbers. They've taken this vow. That's why they've shaved their heads. This wasn't something unique to these men. We've seen Paul, even in Acts, taken a vow and shaved his head. But here they say, here's what you should do. You partake in this vow with them, and also you pay the expense for them. You came with money, buddy. Why don't you just pay the bill? You pay for them, and you do it along with them, and that'll appease the people. Yeah, because then they'll see that, no, 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 that's not true. Paul's doing what they're doing. He's following the law. He's following the ceremonies. He's not coming against it. You do that. And if I'm Paul in this moment, I'm thinking, I've done nothing wrong. I've got nothing to prove. I'm not paying money out of my own pocket for these guys. I'm not shaving my head again. I'm not going through all of the Nazarite vow. But what does he do? He does it. He came to Jerusalem to seek unity, to be a peacemaker, to bring the gospel. He's a man who had a deep conviction in this call. I'm going to Jerusalem, not to stir up trouble. And you're wrongfully accusing me, but you know what? I'm here to bring the gospel. And if, if this is my opportunity to, to die to myself a little, to, to cough up the money, to go through the ceremony, to take this vow with these men, to go through that process so that more might be won for Christ, I'll do it. The resolve, I love it. There's no hesitation. There's no frustration. There's no debate. All right, James, that's what you guys think is best. I'll do it. I'm willing to do it. This was a necessary cost that he would gladly make. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, Paul said, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul says, this is what needs to take place here so that I can reach more people for the gospel of Christ. I'm happy to pay that price. When we go to Africa, we go around to the different uh, small villages and we'll, we'll share with them that we're going to play a video and we're going to share the gospel and we invite them. And, and one thing they've asked of us to do is when you're going door to door, you need to wear 
trousers, right? You don't say pants. That means underwear in Africa. So you're going to wear trousers everywhere you go, and it's hot, okay? It's Africa hot. And you want to wear shorts. It, you're, you're sweating like crazy, but all right, if that's what it takes, because to them, shorts are like pajamas. Shorts are like what you wear out and working. That's not polite attire to go to somebody's house to introduce yourself and then to invite them to something. You need to be dressed nicely. And so we wear trousers, and we're sweating through our trousers like crazy. But you know what? That's a small price to pay if I can do that, and so you're more willing to hear me. You're more willing to have a discussion with me, and you feel more respected and honored and want to come hear the gospel. Of course, that's a small price to pay. There may be different situations in your life where the Lord calls you to, to count the cost. Just give that up. It's not that big of a deal. Just submit to this so that more might be won for Christ. Now, this doesn't mean we ever compromise the truth. This doesn't mean we ever water down the gospel. But it means we're constantly looking for ways to unite with people and say, how can I come alongside them so that I might share the gospel with them? And Paul here says, it looks like carrying out this vow and paying for it, I'll do it. Here's the money, let's do it. And so he takes these men and he enters into the temple, and they're finishing up this vow. And all the city was disturbed, and the people together, they seized him. This riot breaks out. Paul, the man who's sacrificing to try and bring unity, the man who's trying to appease them, even when he's wrongfully accused, is once again now wrongfully accused. He's just taken, and he's beaten. The mob comes after him. The man who's pursuing unity. The man giving up his life and leaving so many friends all along the way to head to Jerusalem. And they're just seeking to take his life, to kill him in this moment. The very people he came to seek to save are trying to kill him. The man who was committed to unity at all costs is continually being accused of rebellion and division. And when all he could do was get to Jerusalem, all they can say is away with him. Get him out of here. We don't want him. And Paul is more like Jesus in this moment than he's ever been. A man headed to Jerusalem, seeking to save the people, bringing the hope of salvation unjustly accused, rejected by the people, beaten, and would have been killed if it wasn't for this garrison and the centurions that come in to break it up. It says they see them and then they stop beating him. But they were trying to kill the man. But all he was doing was trying to get there as quickly as he could to share of what God was doing, to share the gospel and see more Men saved. He had a burden for the Jews. He thought like a Jew. He lived like a Jew. He, he wanted to see them find the freedom he had found in Jesus. And they reject him. The one who came hoping to save. And they just say, away with him. Get him out of here. We want nothing to do with this man. And when the centurions come and when they grab him and they try and figure out what's going on, the people don't even know. Some are saying this, some are saying that. It's just a mob mentality. 
Nobody really knows what's going on. We just, we want this man dead. We want him out of here. But as Paul has said before, none of these things move him. He was ready to die, so he's not running. He's not looking for a way of escape. He came here knowing chains awaited him, and here we see they chain him up, and they take him away. That resolve, that boldness, that courageousness. I read a story this week by a historian about Stonewall Jackson. The historian Mark Brimsley wrote, A battlefield is a deadly place, even for generals. And it would be naive to suppose Jackson never felt the animal fear of all beings exposed to wounds and death. But invariably, he displayed extraordinary calm under fire, a calm too deep and masterful to be mere pretense. His apparent obliviousness to danger attracted notice. And after the first Manassas battle, someone asked him how he managed it. Jackson explained, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as I do in bed. God knows the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter where it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. I love that. He's just as safe in the battlefield as he is in his own bed. And he's not worried about when that day comes. It'll come. But he's got work to do. There's things to be done. And Paul here is the same way. We don't see him scared and terrified, looking over his shoulder as he walks into Jerusalem. He knows that's in the Lord's hands. He's going to be faithful today. And as I invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to close with a final song of worship, These moments will look different for all of us. For the majority of us, it's not going to look like chains and being bound before a judge. It's not going to look like being on a battlefield. But as you pursue the call of Christ in your life with conviction, realize there is a cost you will have to pay. A cost that you'd be wise to count now before you're in this situation. You'd be wise to wake up every morning and say, Lord, whatever it is, I'm counting the cost today and I'm saying my life is yours. I'm surrendered to you. So whatever awaits you, it could be chains, it could be frustration, it could be arguments, it could be painful, it could be difficult, it could be frustrating, it could be false accusations, but whatever awaits you, you've counted the cost. And you, like Paul, have that resolve to say, I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. Whatever it is, Lord, where you send me, I'll go. What you tell me to say, I'll say it. Who you want me to be, show me. I'll be it. Paul here has just lost his freedom for what will be the last time. But for you, it could look like losing a career or a reputation. It could look like losing your family or your friends. It could cost you your safety and your health even at times. It could be your home or your dreams. 
But here's the thing, no matter what the cost God is calling you to pay, we can be confident of one thing. It's worth it. You're getting far more out of the deal than whatever he's calling you to give up. What does Romans 8, 28 promise us? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So when he gives you a calling on your life, when he calls you to go there to do that, to be that, and you count the cost of what it's going to take, and you gladly give up those things because your life is a living sacrifice, realize you are getting far more out of this deal than you're giving up. And whatever you may give up, you are gaining so much more than you could ever pay for in the salvation that Jesus has made available for us. And so we count the cost, yes, but when we compare it with what's already been paid for us, it shouldn't even compare. In fact, Paul would try and count the cost and look at his sufferings compared to the glory that would be revealed in him. And he said, it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that would be revealed in one day. And as we count the cost, it is peanuts what God is calling us to give up compared to what we gain in Christ as we follow in obedience to his will for us. So whatever Christ has called you to today, it's worth it. It's worth the cost. And if you're struggling to believe that today, take a moment to sit before the cross of Christ and look at the great cost he paid for your salvation and remind yourself that it's worth it. We're going to have people available on both sides of the stage for prayer. If there's anything that you're struggling with that you know God is calling you to count the cost on, but you feel that tension and that pull within your heart that you don't want to pay it, come up and get prayer. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder today in our text of Paul's resolve, a man who had counted the cost who was headed to Jerusalem, even though he knew chains awaited him there. But God, he had a conviction within him. He was bound in the spirit. And Lord, all that he would suffer in his life, he would say was not worth comparing to the glory that would be revealed in him one day. God, forgive us for the times when we begin to question the things you call us to give up. When we count the cost and we think we're getting the raw end of the deal, Lord, forgive us for those moments where we are so foolish, we were so blind. God, but whatever those things are today, Lord, we say yes. We want to count the cost, Lord. We want to pay the price. Whatever it is, Lord, we've been bought with a price and we want to glorify you with our bodies. Whatever it is, Lord, show us what you would have us to do. For your glory, to make much of your kingdom and your name, Jesus. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.